0: Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 75. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wollman. Hello, Dr. Wollman.
1: Greetings, Christina, and how are you?
0: Fantastic. Very Fantastic. excited.
1: Fantastic, yes. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wollman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And today we have with us uh, in a return performance, Dr. Gary Winston. Uh, I would like to suggest that everyone go to episode 11, Toxins and Toxicants, to learn a lot more about uh, Dr. Winston. But just briefly, he uh, has his PhD in biochemistry. He was the chair of the Department of Biochemistry at Louisiana State University. He was also the head of the Department of Toxicology at North Carolina State University, and he was the chief toxicologist in the Ministry of Health in Israel, and we're going to find out what he's doing uh, today, and we're going to be talking about water. Uh, The title for our show today is Water for a Thirsty Planet. So, Christina, if people want to reply or ask questions uh, for Gary, how would they do that?
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Glenn. Um, At any time during this presentation, you can ask a question by submitting it into the comment box at the bottom of the screen and just scroll down, type it in, and be sure to click Submit. We'll make sure that your question is uh, sent to uh, Dr. Gary Winston for an answer, so, and keep an eye out because usually the reply comes quite fast. Thank you, Glenn.
1: Uh, You're welcome, Christina. So, Gary, welcome. I'd like to welcome you back to our show. How are you?
2: I'm fine, Glenn. Thank you. It's nice to be here again.
1: Yeah, it's really good, and it's a great
2: topic. And this (laughs) time, I'm actually coming to you from the Colorado School of Public Health at the medical campus at the University of Colorado, where I'm teaching a course in water quality and public health. So, fits nicely with the theme of our talk today.
1: I was hoping you would do it from uh, somewhere floating down the Colorado River. (laughs) I would have preferred it.
0: (laughs) In that (laughs) That case, we'll have to be right beside him, Glenn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Gary, uh, as the medical guide, I want to tell people where we're going to hopefully go today, where the flow is going to be. We want to get into a little bit of your background in water. Uh, We want to talk about uh, what's going on in water around the world and uh, global public health. That's an important topic for us. We'll talk about maybe some water availability, the sources of water, whether we can sustain it, the possibility of how we're polluting uh, our water supplies. Maybe we'll get into some waterborne diseases and contaminations. might even talk about the privatization and corporate water and to see maybe if water is going to be the oil of the future, and uh, we will talk more about that. How does that sound to you?
2: Sounds great. Sounds great. They're all important themes.
1: Let's get started. Uh, The first thing is, I think before we really get into a lot, why don't you talk to us a little bit about just water itself, the physical chemical properties, just so that we're all uh, getting the same picture that you have.
2: Sure, sure. I don't think there's any mystery as far as the... uh, chemical properties of uh, water, I think we all know that water is H2O. In other words, it has two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. And it's a molecule that's quite polar because the oxygen, which has a negative charge on it, is quite separated from the two hydrogens, which have positive charges on it. And that contributes to its properties. But I don't want to go into detail about the, proper, about the chemical properties because it would confuse a basic audience. Rather, what I would like to do is talk about the importance of water in the body and what it does, and I can tell you that the chemical properties of water are what give it the physical properties that I'm going to talk about right now in the body itself. For one thing, water does help us regulate our body temperature. It's very, very important in that respect. The other thing is it is sometimes referred to as the universal solvent. Now, that doesn't mean that as a universal solvent, it dissolves everything. What it means is water as a solvent will dissolve more substances than any other solvent will. And this helps us very much because it will dissolve minerals, amino acids, sugars, things of this nature so that the nutrients can be carried to the cells in Mm. the water, which is part of the blood. That's very important. So it helps dissolve the nutrients and then helps to carry the nutrients. It also moistens our tissues. As you know, it's very important so that we don't get dry eye or dry mucous membrane. And um, it lubricates our joints, which is very, very important. So those are important properties as it pertains to the health of a human being and why we need to drink nearly at least two liters of water a day.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I'm glad you did that. I think uh, getting into the actual physical properties for our own health is much more important than learning about the polar and electromagnetic forces at this point. Sure. So thank you for that. Uh, did you want to uh, show a movie to us?
2: You know, I thought, Glenn, <laughs> it would be a marvelous idea to start this show with a very short video that I got from National Geographic. Um, showing the extent of water and the breakdown of water on the planet. Because even though 98% of our, you know, we actually have 326 million trillion gallons of water that we can find on our planet. But 98% of that 326 million trillion gallons can be found in the oceans Actually, what's available to us to drink, the fresh water that we drink, is less than 1% of all of the water on the planet. So I want to show this video because it illustrates it so nicely and so dramatically in a way that National Geographic can do it best.
1: Well, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I'd like to uh, watch that probably a few more times, Gary. Thank mm-hmm. you for sharing sure. that with us. You bet. Uh, so we we need to talk about lots of things with water. Uh, the first thing that I think we need to talk about is where do we get our water?
2: You know, Glenn, let, <laughs> let me preface this by saying that, you know, All of the water that we have on our planet today is the exact same amount and the exact same water that we've had for 4.5 billion years when this planet formed. So one would think, well, gee whiz, if we still have the same amount of water, how come it's not accessible to us really? But water comes to us in two forms, groundwater through what we refer to as aquifers, and surface water, which comes to us through lakes, and streams, and brooks, and rivers, and things of that nature. So the waters that we get come from the surface of the planet, or the waters come from deep in the ground. That's why sometimes we have to dig wells quite deeply in order to tap water supplies. As a matter of fact, I will mention that one of the largest aquifers—an aquifer is just simply a contained groundwater part—the Ogallala Aquifer actually was responsible for making and contributing to what we call the breadbasket of America. But Mm. we've tapped that so greatly, we have withdrawn that water so much during er irrigation processes. 70% 70% of our water goes to irrigation, but we've tapped that tremendously. And, um, in so doing, uh, I have a very nice slide that shows the, uh, impact of irrigation withdrawals back in the year 2005. It's only getting worse. I'd like to, uh, I, I would like the audience to be able to see that slide. I assume they can see that slide, yes? Correct. Okay. Well, if you notice in the slide, you can see that as we go from almost white to the darkest blue, we're talking about water withdrawals in millions of gallons a day. Millions of gallons a day. And we have now withdrawn so much water from the ground for use in irrigation and use in industry, which requires about 20% of our total water, we're withdrawing it at such a rate that we can actually see sinkholes forming all over the United States because we don't have the water pressure to hold up the ground anymore. So the ground collapses. And you can see in that slide, A house almost being swallowed up by a sinkhole. So it's really tremendous because we are so much overtapping our groundwater. The surface waters aren't quite um, so bad, but there's a problem with the surface waters. And that is that they tend to get polluted much more easily than groundwater. And I think it's logical because in order to pollute groundwater, we have to get the pollutant to percolate way down through the ground, whereas surface waters, just simple runoff, whether it comes from an agricultural watershed or an urban watershed, it flows off into the surface water and creates a a tremendous amount of contaminants. Now, uh, Hmm. I'm not sure what slide... Uh, I I don't see the slides from my end. I don't know exactly what slide is up there at the moment. Um, Glenn, what slide is up there at
1: the moment? We're still looking at the irrigation uh, withdrawal. Um,
2: I think we want to take a look at uh, this atlas of America's polluted waters. Um, What we see here is the darker the shade of brown, the greater the percentage of waters that are impaired in the United States. So you can see, for example, in Florida, there's a tremendous amount along the eastern seaboard, along the western seaboard, and near the Great Lakes. And that that's greater than 20 of the water supply is actually being impaired by runoff from these various sources, whether it be from urban runoff or agricultural runoff. So it's a very, very important problem. Now, I would also like to point out that we
0: have many, many,
2: Reasons why water does get polluted, especially the surface water. For one thing, acid mine drainage. We have in the state of Colorado alone over 8,000 abandoned mines, mm-hmm. and they create this acid drainage which contains cyanide and arsenic, and it flows into our surface waters. And you can see here the urban runoff coming through this pipe. I mean, that's coming from industries, and it's coming from sewage, and it's coming from runoff from roads. I mean, this is a very, very serious problem. Then we can talk about the agricultural runoffs and the agricultural pollution, pesticides and fertilizers being sprayed onto our crops, that run off when we have storm events, in fact, fertilizers run off so so incredibly during storm events that it actually creates now imagine this the fertilizer fertilizes the plants so the plant will grow well, interestingly, algae is a plant, so when fertilizer runs off. From agricultural lands into our waters, it fertilizes algae and creates these very harmful algal blooms. You know, you folks that live in in, in California, you're very familiar, I think, with red tide that Mm -hmm. happens during the warm water period, and it gets into shellfish, and it can actually be lethal. But we forget because so much is made of red tide— that freshwater algae contains many, many dangerous toxins. And in fact, it can get so bad. I'd like to show you a slide here. it It' take me a second. Um, I'd like you to notice in this slide, this is a toxic blue-green algal bloom. We call it a harmful algal bloom, the name of the algae happens to be microcystis that produces a very dangerous toxin known as microcystin that has killed children. It has killed plants. It has resulted in in, um, no fishing orders where we cannot fish the waters from Lake Erie, which destroys the economy around Lake Erie. Because imagine this, if you can't fish, the fishing industry dies, the boating industry dies, the sporting Mm. goods The industry dies. And look at this. This is Lake Erie. It runs from Toledo all the way across to Buffalo, New York. This would be Buffalo, New York in the upper right-hand corner. So it's about 268 miles long. But if you look towards the western basin, I think you can see the western basin labeled there near Toledo. Look at that. This is taken from a Landsat photograph, a a satellite photograph high above the earth so you can see the entire Lake Erie. And look at that algae that has formed in the western basin of Lake Erie. It is very, very serious. It's only one kind of algae. There are many freshwater algaes that cause very harmful Harmful disease states, and it is so dangerous that it actually forces the, the the city of Toledo, which gets its water supply from Lake Erie, to spend an extra three thousand to four thousand dollars a day to treat the microcystin toxins from these harmful algal blooms. Now, where do you think that three thousand to four thousand dollars a day? comes from comes from the consumer that has to pay the water bill Hmm. so in that regard that's another one so you have and the other thing is remember that as water runs off from agricultural watersheds it carries manure from cows pigs chickens and so forth which carry very harmful bacteria viruses protozoans that can cause disease states. So today, there is mandated by the Environmental Protection Agency a manure management program where the farmers must manage the manure and make sure that it is composted so that it does not contain and is fumigated so that it does not contain these harmful algae I mean, these harmful uh, bacteria and viruses and so forth. Mm. I, I don't know if anyone's ever had, wow. if, if anybody's ever had um, the disease uh, crypto, uh, cryptospori- Spor- yeah, cryptosporosis. cryptosporosis. Yep. It's a very nasty, nasty disease. And it also comes from agricultural runoff. Mm. So anyway, So, so how does that
0: affect like the fish in the lake?
2: So much so, Christina, that at times when we get harmful algal blooms like the ones that I'm showing, like the one I showed on the screen, they actually have to order that a no fishing order, and many of the fish do die.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: Many of the fish die, and pets that eat the fish will die. I mean, it's a very Mm. serious problem, and we do our best to try to manage agricultural runoff and in order to do that we have to implore farmers to use best management practices and that means don't spread the fertilizer heavily during the winter time when the ground is hard and a storm event comes in and can wash it off Mm -hmm. down through a river and into a big lake basin like this so there's it's a serious serious problem Wow. And I just thought that maybe it might be interesting. You know, we hear so much about um, pharmaceuticals and water. The, American, the Associated Press had a big story about three or four or five years ago, uh, warning us that we are starting to find pharmaceuticals and personal care products showing up in our waterbeds and in our water streams. and. They, they come from many, many different sources. I've got a little slide here that shows the pathways of the pharmaceuticals and personal care products release into the environment. So when we treat livestock, for example, with antibiotics, it runs off into the water. When we store manure and the manure forms a slurry and a, and a big storm event comes about, Flows off into our water. Um, people dump their used medicines down the down the toilet, and it flushes into the sewage system, and then on into our water supplies from this wastewater treatment and from medicines and manufacturing processes all over the world. It's uh, fortunately, it has only shown itself in levels that are at parts per trillion that's a very very low level but it's still a concern because it's growing we don't know how to get it out of the watershed it may not prove to be a real problem to human beings because it does get cleaned up when it passes through the water processing plant through the utilities but what can happen and what is of concern You get a bunch of antibiotics in the water with a bunch of bacteria in the water. And the next thing you know, you have the potential of creating antibiotic resistant Mm. microbes. So there's several. I mean, I could go, I could do an entire, an entire um, yoga hub, uh, magical medical tour on just PPCP releases into the environment but i don't think we need to go that way today.
0: It, <laughs> That's think, the next show. <laughs> right. one when thing i did
2: to- want to ask Gary, mm-hmm. is uh mm-hmm. i heard
1: i heard you say that it can get into the waterbed.
2: mhm into and I'm the water wondering supplies, if you're talking the about dreams, the lakes. so you're not
1: talking about the waterbed that i sleep on. <laughs> <laughs> i'm oh, starting knows? to panic thinking <laughs> all the things that might be
2: growing underneath me. <laughs> You know, who knows? You may be. Uh, what did you fill I,
0: that bed well, up no, with? Because
2: I'm sure you fill up your water bed from your tap. And
1: if no, I actually from, had it shipped in from Lake Erie. I, it, I, would, I
2: would, worry about it. If you punched a hole in it, your water would come out green.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to do that. So, Gary, you've told us you've told us uh, a lot about polluted water and different aspects of this and. Uh, i 'm a little nervous. How do we know where we live now that when we turn on our tap, that water is safe for us
2: glenn it 's an interesting question. It depends where your water comes from. If you live in a large city, if you live in a major city that 's greater than a population of let 's say five ten fifteen thousand people, I live in one that has over a million people. Um, your water probably comes from the from a lot Los Angeles water purification plant. If it comes from a major purification plant, they are obligated by law to send out to every stakeholder, anybody that drinks the water, a report that tells you, tells the consumer whether or not any particular regulated water pollutant has exceeded the maximum contaminant level established by the Environmental Protection Agency. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it's always bad if it exceeds because the EPA does allow some exceedances, it's an average spread out over a year. So obviously, and there's there's a safety factor, some can be quite huge. Um, but. Typically, there's at least a tenfold up to a 10,000 fold safety factor, depending upon how we learned about the toxic ramifications of a particular chemical. So, for example, if the study was done in a rodent, then there's an extra tenfold safety factor that gets added to the maximum contaminant level to account for interspecies variation. If the study is a chronic study versus an acute study, an acute study is not as robust as a chronic study. So if the study is an acute study, you have to add another tenfold safety factor. You have to add extra tenfold safety factors for special groups like children and um, people with specific diseases like diabetes and so forth. So it's a very complex process. You can be sure if you get your water from a municipal water supply company that it is going to be very safe to drink. Now, part two. If you live in an area where you're drawing your water from a well, and you live in an area where there might be some groundwater contamination, you may end up with more of the biological organisms, the microbial organisms that can cause disease, and you might end up with more of the toxic chemicals, especially if your well is dug and is low-lying and you get a storm event that washes these things into the well. So it's important for, I know that when I worked with the National Center for Water Quality Research, um, we were funded entirely by by region a of the u.s epa Um, we we used to test water for anybody that wanted to have their well water tested when i was chief toxicologist in israel i had the power to be able to shut down a well if i felt it was too contaminated so but municipal water supplies you never have to worry about well water supplies you have to worry a little bit more and you must treat your well water system or once the water comes out of the well and goes to your tap, I strongly advise that you have it filtered and use very sophisticated filtration devices. I can tell you that a Brita filter is not going to take out some of the stuff that's in well water. You really need to have a a, a specific Either nano filtration system, or you need to have a specific um, microfiltration or reverse osmosis system. But you must purify your water if it's coming from a well. Gary, you've
1: given us a lot of good information about our local water, but uh, part of this talk today is about the planet—the uh, you know the health of the planet in terms of yes. water. And at the beginning, you mentioned that we have the same amount of water that we've had since. Uh, for millions and billions of years. Uh, But there's a discrepancy in how much water we have in certain areas versus in other areas. So I'm wondering, as a person who's involved in water, you don't look at it just from the uh, local point of view. You're looking at it from a global point of view. And what are we learning in this country in terms of dealing with water and pollution and runoffs and all of the things that you 've spoken about to help people in other countries that don't have uh, as good a water supply
2: well you 're absolutely right. I will preface this by saying that your statement that they don't have as good a water supply as we have is an absolute fact. Um, the truth of the matter is is that approximately between one and two billion people a year die from some form of waterborne disease. And most of these waterborne diseases occur in the southern hemisphere, and most of those occur in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa is particularly dangerous. Um, Do you know that 6,000 children a day die from diarrheal diseases? Can you imagine 6,000 children a day? And those diarrheal diseases are all caused by microbial organisms. So one of the lessons that we have learned is that we must get into these developing countries and educate the people there about their water supplies. But they're never going to be able to afford a massive um water purification plant like we have in the United States. I mean, thousands of water purification plants. So what we do, I happen to be a a member of the ambassador circle of an NGO known as the um, International Development uh, Enterprise, IDE. And there's another organization here that's based in Denver called Water for People, they go to Africa, they go to these developing countries, and they help the people with what we call point-of-use filtration devices. Now, in some cases, they can be as simple as a ceramic vessel where the water can eventually pass through the ceramic pores. They keep just enough pore opening by using Corn husk and other things of that nature can pass through these and purify the water.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, we, we try to help these developing nations conserve their water. Uh, and one of the ways that we do it is to provide drip irrigation kits so that they don't use as much water in their irrigation processes So it's a big education process that we have to undertake and thank goodness for all of the NGOs, the, the beneficial NGOs that we have in this world that have as a mission clean drinking water. Big controversy whether or not drinking water is a basic human right or not. Now in the United States... You don't pay for your drinking water per se. What you pay for is the infrastructure to deliver to your home clean water. So somehow or other, the water purification plants have to recoup their funding, and that's what your water bill is all about. Now, that's very nice for a developing country, but a, I mean, for a developed country. But for a developing country, they don't have the funding to be able to create this kind of an infrastructure. There's really only three ways that water can be rendered unsustainable. And that's been that's the problem. When I said we have the same volume of water on the planet as we had 4.5 billion years ago, a major problem is, is that we have not sustained it properly. We have not recharged the water to a safe state and because there's three major factors that can involve this that can actually cause this one is we waste water now think about your shower practices are you do you go in and just simply turn on the water for about one minute get your body wet soap your entire body down turn having turned the water off And then turn the water back on to rinse the soap off. When you brush your teeth, do you make sure you turn off the faucet while you're brushing your teeth. Each time that you moisten your toothbrush, you brush your teeth with the water off and then clean your toothbrush with the water on again for a couple of seconds. Rinse your mouth, you know, through a glass of water. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. So wasting it... um, Washing your car with your city tap water is a heinous waste many many municipalities have made it a law now that you cannot wash your car with um, with the city water supply um, that we used to irrigate golf courses with municipal water supplies now we don't do that anymore we irrigate golf courses and even some food some farms with recycled water where the where, where water wastewater has been treated partially so that it is clean enough to irrigate the crop. I mean, after all, you're going to put the water out onto soil and dirt again, so it doesn't have to be drinking water pure. But we're learning that. Another thing that's causing unsustainable water practice is we pollute it. And once it's polluted badly, we can't necessarily always clean up that pollution. Now we do have different ways of doing that. Like I say, we can treat wastewater and take the treated wastewater and recharge the aquifer or recharge the surface water source, so that it will have to pass through the to pass through the water treatment plant again. But it's better to dump partially treated wastewater back into the recharge zone than it is to simply let the water go to waste. You know, water is a very funny thing. Astronauts drink their urine, so there's no reason why we can't clean up wastewater and make wastewater potable, or at least semi-potable in that we can dump it back into areas where where, where the water is a source. And finally, we may not, we probably do not charge enough to sustain the infrastructure and all of the regulatory compliance issues that are enforced on water supplies and the detection. You know, we the EPA regulates 91 different chemicals. There's probably a couple of thousand that could be regulated, but every time... For one thing, we may not even be able to detect an unregulated contaminant. And the other thing is, unregulated contaminants may not have all been toxicologically tested so that we can establish a maximum contaminant level. So there are real, real problems with that and just infrastructure funding needs. You'd you'd be surprised how many pipes lead from the drinking water reservoir from the treatment plant that have already passed the drinking water treatment plant quite cleanly. But because of corroding pipes, it creates what we call back pressure events. Once a pipe spritzes a little hole or breaks a little hole or a crack, it causes a vacuum because Remember, the water's coming through, and because the water is coming through at a rapid velocity, it creates a vacuum, and that can suck up bacteria right from the soil and go right into a person's tap. So these render water basic water supplies unsustainable, not to mention that many industries are absolute water gluts <laughs> Gary uh- yeah. No, go ahead. I, no, I your say, the shirt that you're wearing right now was probably used in the neighborhood of almost 100 gallons of water to produce. I pos- I specifically wore a blue shirt today to <laughs> represent <laughs> water. Probably has so. more water than my brown shirt, which has more dirt. <laughs> go ahead, ask your question. Well, you, you know, you spoke about.
1: Uh, many things right now. The last thing you spoke about was lack of financial capital. You spoke about NGOs around the world. Um, mm-hmm. Is Are corporations, and is there privatization of water that's happening? Are people taking over water supplies, countries buying up lakes and rivers? and
2: Yes. So yes. isn't that unfortunate that actually uh, y- Europe, there, there are countries in Europe that are putting up Big, you know, big amounts of money to buy rights to water supplies so that they can privatize the water and charge higher rates for water. Now, I'm not saying that privatization is always bad. I mean, in some cases, we do privatize portions of water. For example, water laboratories are usually privatized to private laboratories to test to make sure that there's no microbes in the water, things like that. But the thing is, is that um, there are countries like, uh, well, the city of uh, Cochachamba, Bolivia, had a huge, huge water privatization issue where the privatization actually Bechtel Corporation. Have you heard of Bechtel Corporation? They're a very, very large, uh, actually, chemical group. Mm -hmm. Nestle, Coca-Cola, companies like this have actually bought the water system and privatized the water so that they can have access to the water by raising the fees. And what that had, what that had accomplished, I don't know if you want to call it an accomplishment, but definitely a negative accomplishment was it forced people from having their drinking water because they could not pay for it. Mm. And that's not just a developing country problem. The city of Detroit, Michigan, which has a water supply company owned by the the government, the the, the Detroit uh, municipal government, shut off 40,000 addresses I'm not talking just people that impacted over 140,000 people, but shut off 40,000 addresses from the municipal water supply because they tried to inflate the cost in order to be able to maintain the valuable infrastructure. So 40,000 addresses were without water. Hmm. And if you Google Detroit water, you'll see an awful story. And let me tell you one other thing, too. Let there be no doubt that there was some environmental injustice in that, too, because it was obviously the poor people who could no longer afford to pay the inflated prices. So we have some water problems. And we definitely, I think at the very beginning of the program, Glenn might have mentioned uh, the new oil. And I think I understood the metaphor, uh, Mm -hmm. rather well. And I think what you meant was, are we going to fight wars over water? Like we fight wars over energy and oil. Exactly. Yeah. I, I had a feeling that was the case. Well, we're solving the energy crisis. It's going to take a while. We will, I mean, fracking of course is, uh it's a controversial issue, but not one that I consider a very controversial issue. I think fracking is a very valid process and and can be regulated very, very well. And the EPA is doing a good job and OSHA is doing a good job of regulating the fracking practices. You know what fracking is. Mm-hmm. It's a hydraulic fracturing where they force sand down through pipes and the sand spreads out through fissures and opens the fissures so that the natural gas can escape. Well, that's a good practice because we can use that natural gas, and that takes away our dependency on fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are going to run out. We've been very good at alternative forms of energy. Wind, solar, tidal. I mean, these are just examples of, of um, new alternative energies that we have That can look. All you really need energy for is to have enough power to cause a turbine to rotate around a magnet, which then produces electrons, which can light up a city. So that's that's Mm -hmm. why we have that's why we have um, that's all that the oil is being used for, except for our cars, of course. That's direct combustion. But as far as a municipal's energy needs. Electricity, television, um, laundromats, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, washing machines, you just name it, um, right down to an electric toothbrush. Um, These things, we, we have the alternative energy developing, I didn't say developed, developing to be able to replace our fossil fuels. But there's a downside to that. Try to tell me, if you can, any one single alternative energy source that has not run into environmental constraints by environmental activist groups. You're Californians. You've driven out into uh, um, what's a golf uh, resort area in Southern California, uh, Palm Springs. You've driven out to Palm Springs. I'm positive. That in your drive to Palm Springs, you have seen something that you might almost call Windmill National Park. (laughs) Because there's so many hundreds of thousands of windmills.
1: Mm.
2: Now, you don't think that we just can build a windmill without using any energy. Mm. Just try to calculate the amount of steel that's in wind energy and Mm -hmm. The amount of coal-fired power plants and possibly nuclear power plants that have gone into the production of that steel. So no matter what new technology we try to develop, there is a sociological phenomenon referred to as cultural lag. The culture will always lag behind the technology. Now, there are some great water technologies coming about. One of them is desalination. Now, we have desalination plant. We're we're even starting to consider desalination plants in the United States, mainly for treatment of wastewater. Israel, Saudi Arabia, um, the United Emirates, Arab Emirates, these countries actually use desalination for drinking water purposes. Israel has over 50 desalination plants for varying degrees of purification of water. So there's, but it's a technology that is coming about that might have great validity as far as drinking water is concerned and producing drinking water. So we're, we're keeping up with the technology, um, that, or let's say this, the technology is advancing, there's still cultural lag treating wastewater work to the point where we absolutely can treat wastewater so that you can take wastewater and have it so pure you can drink it without the slightest harmful effect it's mm. every bit as good as the water to be delivered so there's a great deal of hope as mm-hmm. far as our water systems are concerned in this country and i have what i always thought was a rather great idea You've all heard of a carbon footprint. You've all heard of a carbon footprint, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Every environmentalist knows what a carbon footprint is. Obviously, the more energy intensive your company, the bigger the water fo- the, the bigger the uh, carbon footprint. So if you have a big carbon footprint, then you've probably heard of carbon offsets. And that is where big energy producing big energy glut corporations pay money to help develop alternative technologies. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I have an idea. we have a water footprint. There are many very water-intensive industries. The, co- the, the cosmetic industry, the food industry. It takes 600 gallons to make one pound of beef. That's why I always believed in that book, Diet for a Hungry Planet. We don't need meat. We absolutely do not need meat. We can say all most of the corn that we grow in this country goes to two sources: fuel, ethanol, and the second is to feed animals. More of the corn that is produced in this country feeds animals than it feeds us so That's another way of looking at it. But I believe that very, very big paper, oh, the paper industry, tremendous water users. The textile industry, tremendous water users. Agriculture, tremendous water users, especially big monocultures, you know, that produce one, like coffee plantations and so forth. Why can't these big companies with big water footprints, pay water offsets. Mm -hmm. And give that money to Cambodia and give it to other Southeast Asia and give it to sub-Saharan Africa so that they can have cleaner water and better irrigation systems. That's a question that I ask. That's a question that I would like somebody to address on this show that ever writes in privatization actually ended up with civil disobedience in Cochichamba, Bolivia, with the people protesting the lack of availability of water so vociferously that they ended up kicking Bechtel, kicking Coca-Cola, and kicking Nestle right the heck out of the country and putting the water supply back into the government.
1: Do you think, uh, you know, getting back to the original question, uh, well, not the original
2: question, but do you think there will be water wars? There already have been water wars. Mm. It's not even a case of will there be water wars. There already are water wars. Privatization is, an ex- is a classic example of a water war. It, it pits a population against an enterprise, a, against a company. There are other water wars. There's water rights. You know, there's transboundary issues. You know that the Colorado River used to reach California, don't you? I mean, you all know that. That, that was and our right, water supply. Yeah, and right now you've got nothing but a dry delta that looks like uh the Sahara. Well, <laughs> well I've aren't been we also to talk pumping to you about that.
0: Aren't we yeah, also, also actually, pumping water from, from the northern part of California too? Like cause I was just up in Mammoth Lakes area and That's a huge uh, situation going on there about LADWP using their water.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a
0: huge draining the lakes. Yeah.
2: Yes, Canada has even um, offered to supply some of their water. Wealthy, very water rich, and for a fee, they're willing to supply the United States where we need water. Some water, but there's water laws if water crosses a border, for example, the Danube River. The Danube River crosses 13 different countries. Now, there are laws. If you have a high-polluting country upstream that pollutes downstream, Mm -hmm. the upstream country has to pay the downstream country. And that's what I talk about when I say water offsets. Mm -hmm. We have Right here in, uh, uh, you have a case. Uh, it, it, it's actually uh, Tijuana, Mexico. There's a big Tijuana watershed. The Tijuana watershed has a sub-watershed in it known as the Los Loreles Canyon. It's right on the U.S.-Mexican border. Unfortunately, it flows south to north. That's where the Tijuana River flows. that goes through that watershed. It's a filthy, what they call, a, uh, a community populares. That means it's, there's no, absolutely no guidelines for the construction of the community. They can build the community out of anything they want to. They can toss tires anywhere they want to. Well, that water, heavily polluted, flows from Mexico through the Los Laurelis Canyon into one of the most sensitive estuaries in the country, And that's the Tijuana estuary in San Diego. It has come through so badly, the polluted water that it's closed the beach along the coast of San Diego and has destroyed some of the many migratory birds that use that estuary and rook in that estuary. So there's all those are water wars. The Israelis and the Palestinians are engaged in a huge water war. Who owns the Sea of Galilee, Lake Kinneret? Actually, had some. the Palestinians claim that part of that is theirs, and Israel claims that part of that is theirs. Who gets the share? So far, it seems as though Israel is getting the lion's share of that. So there has actually been um, Palestinian-Israeli joint organizations to try to sort out these water rights, and to also join and partner in wastewater treatment. So, yeah, Glenn, is it will there be water wars? There already are water wars, <laughs> and lots of them.
1: Speaking of water wars, and thank you for that answer, uh, I, I saw a study uh, a few months ago that said Europeans drink more bottled water than the United States. Nations. I mean, excuse me, than the United (laughs) States. Sorry about that. And I want to ask you about bottled water. How much healthier is bottled water for us than tap water?
2: If your tap water supply is a municipal water treatment plant. Like our Colorado's brand new Peter Binney water purification plant, or Denver Water, or whatever the name of the water company is in California, or Meckeroat Water Company in Israel, and, and, and the ones in France. <clears throat> what you get out of the tap is every bit as good and healthy for you, and is not there. There has never been a study that can ever show one statistical iota of increased lifespan or health outcomes from drinking just bottled water than from drinking tap water. And the reason is what I told you at the beginning. Most of the bottled water comes from tap water sources. Or some company decides to simply pass the surface water or the groundwater through a reverse osmosis system. Then they put back the magnesium and the calcium and the manganese that was taken out by that reverse osmosis because that's purely heart unhealthy. You have to have calcium in your drinking water and, cal- and magnesium in your drinking water to ma- maintain good heart health. So the answer to your question, simple answer, I think it's ridiculous. Unless you're on a camping trip and want to carry a couple of bottles of, of, of water with you, but you know what I do when I go hiking? And I go hiking every single weekend. I hike up to the top of a place here called Green Mountain. I take my water bottle and I fill it up in the tap. And I put it in the freezer overnight. And the next day I throw it into my backpack. I'm not going to pay $1. fifty to $2. And if I go to a rodeo or a fair or a mountain fair or anything, any one of those kinds of big events, I'm not going to pay $3 for a pint of water to support Nestle and to support that. Do you know that many, many years ago, um, Perrier was actually owned by the Coca-Cola bottling company Mm -hmm. in France. And Perrier was actually on record as saying, we can market water. To Americans because they're stupid enough to buy it.
0: <laughs> and Is that's that what a they little did. bubble to it, and that's it. <laughs> that's what they did.
2: They marketed it as some kind of a so it became like this really posh thing, you know, all the great restaurants and the hip big restaurants. Would you like a bottle of Perrier?
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and people paid exorbitant prices for nothing but a little bit of carbonated. As a matter of fact, 60 Minutes one time did an expose on Perrier. And Perrier claimed it's pure spring water. And I remember it so well. I remember so well. I think it was Morley Safer that said, Well, here's the spring. And it was just a pipe coming out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Don't so, you wish <clears> we would have thought of that, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy. Uh, and you know something Christina? believe me i mean i i i i'm a uh, i am a, am uh what do you call a person that's um <laughs> a person that d- develops money uh making schemes an entrepreneur thank you <laughs> i mean i have an entrepreneurial mind and believe me i've thought of a thousand different ways that i could pull the wool over the public's eye just because i have the biochemical knowledge
0: mm. to
2: really make a compelling case for certain biochemical treatments that, you know, to sell. I, I could do it with the um sport drink industry. I could do it with the sports bar industry. I could do it, you know, like Pure Pro and all of those things and <laughs> cliff bars. Boy, I could I could probably come up with a cliff bar that would kick butt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk later.
2: <laughs> Is that what you would name it?
1: But bar, (laughs) but (laughs) bar. It's actually a pretty good name. It is a good name. It is a pretty good name. Uh, uh, Speaking, uh, staying with uh, bottled water for a few minutes. I don't know if you want to get into this as a topic, but there are people that I periodically uh, listen to and talk to that swear about this special special crystal spring water for their health or alkaline water, uh, a number of different products. Are these all marketing or? Is there something to this?
2: Glenn, it's purely marketing. It's every bit as marketing as the pH diet, the Atkins diet, you know, all of these various diets, the low-carbohydrate diet. Sure, you, if you, what you do in a, in, in a low-carbohydrate diet is deplete your glycogen stores from your muscles and your liver. That's called hitting the wall if you're running a marathon and um, letting yourself go into ketoacidosis because you're ju- doing nothing but breaking down your protein and making ketone bodies. If you, but as far as, um, you know, Crystal Springs and all of that, let them swear by it, Glenn. They're just getting their information off of absurd, ridiculous websites you know, these activist websites, fluoride, just one of the most stupid issues, I think, that ever came out. they Here's what they say. I've, I've read this. It, you know, and, and some companies do put fluoride in bottled water and fluoridation of water. Um, do you, fluoride was a rat poison. Fluoride was used as a rat poison, and fluoride was used by the Nazis as a poison. Well, I can tell you this. You're a doctor. You might have prescribed Coumadin at Mm -hmm. some point in your life to somebody. What is Coumadin? It is warfarin. What is warfarin? Warfarin is the rat poison of choice. Does that mean stop treating people with Coumadin who need to have these blood thinners? I think it's my personal opinion is that buying any bottled water is scam. It's marketing.
0: I mean, I I would say the only time that I would say it's mandatory is when I'm in places like parts of Asia. Oh, okay. in Mexico. <laughs> I'll I pay drink, for that bottled water. <laughs>
2: yes, i pay for that bottled water, too. Uh, I, I, I I drink a lot of beer in Mexico. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the alcohol kill anything, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, I, sometimes I'm not even sure I trust the bottled water in Mexico unless mm. it came from the United States. But... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've, been, I've had Montezuma's revenge in, uh, from, from a salad in, in oh, Mexico yeah. City. Yeah, they don't have, but there's, and you know, the thing is, they even have some good water purification plants. But what's killing Mexico is their deteriorating infrastructure. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You've spoken about that. We're speaking with Dr. Gary Winston, a biochemist, a toxicologist, and a water entrepreneur. Uh, and, Gary, it's come to the time of the show where we always ask our guest for a health tip. I'm wondering if you have something you'd like to share with us.
2: Oh, sure. Gosh, there's so many thousands of health Well, I think the, the last health tip I gave was avoid obesity, right? Correct. The last one I got, I gave because um, there's just so many disease states. It's a heart condition and diabetes and so forth. And, and and we are a pretty fat nation, let there be no doubt. But I think in keeping with the theme here, I would say a good health tip, stay hydrated. Stay mm. hydrated. Drink two to three liters of water a day. Don't drink sugar, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, sugar, duck, carbonated beverages. Substitute it with water. When you go to a restaurant and they say, would you like something to drink? Sure, have your glass of wine, but also make sure you order a glass of water on the side with a slice of lemon. Stay hydrated. For all those reasons that I gave you as to why water is important, right down to helping to dissolve your nutrients, to spread your nutrients, to maintaining your body temperature, to, uh, oh, let's not forget the kidneys too, really really does let, let, lighten the burden placed on kidneys. That's why I say drink water. Don't drink Coke. Don't drink juice. Don't drink coffee for every time you get thirsty, because all that does is make your kidney work twice as hard to filter out the stuff that's in there.
1: Excellent, Gary. Uh, and it stayed right on course with today's talk. I hope this Uh, was interesting and informative for all of our viewers. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Gary Winston, for returning with us and talking about this very important global health issue of water. I'd also like to thank my teachers and my healers for helping me to get through life and to continue with my journey. And I want to wish everyone a happy day and go out and have a nice drink of water. Until we see you. (laughs) Until we see you again uh, next week on Magical Medical Tour as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, I wish you all optimal health. And thank you so much, Gary.
2: Pleasure is all mine. It's always a joy to see you both and talk to you. And Actually... uh, this was
0: fun. Great, bravo. Thank you so much, Dr. Winston and Dr. Uh Woolman. And of course, our Yoga Hub team for making this possible. And to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. May I remind you that you can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman, and of course, through his own website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And please, we are always looking for your feedback and suggestions. Give us a call, 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. YHTV's Trinity of Life. Come join me, Christina Suzama, as I journey to find the many modalities that support individuals, from children to adults to elders, with topics ranging from health and wellness, meditation and inspirational stories. I invite you to visit yogahub.tv every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern.